Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're picking up in a series on historic church liturgy called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. So why do churches do certain things like sing worship music, listen to sermons, and observe sacraments such as bread and wine? Well, there's great purpose in each of these elements, and frequency or how often things like communion are observed are important. The Reformers believed that the Lord's Supper should be observed weekly to feed our souls. Let's learn more now. Here's John with the Gift of Communion, Part 5. One of my professors, Sinclair Ferguson, said it like this. He says, the Lord's Supper tastes best to sinners. It does, and it creates in us, personally and corporately as a church, a spirit of thanksgiving and praise, gratitude. When we come to the sacrament, you commonly know this sacrament as the Lord's Supper. That's the common designation among many evangelical churches, which is a very good designation, as you're going to see. But there are really three common designations of this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and Holy Eucharist. All three designations are theologically and pastorally meaningful. And so what I'm going to argue for you this morning is this, is that we should use all three designations in order to more fully understand and communicate the richness conveyed by each of these three designations. So let's look at the first designation this morning. Let's look at the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Paul, as he is chastising the Corinthian believers, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So that's where we get this from. The designation, the Lord's Supper, reminds us, first of all, of whose meal we are eating. Paul says it is the Lord's Supper. It's his meal. It's not your meal. It's not my meal. It is the Lord's Supper. It is the Lord's meal. Second, this designation reminds us that Jesus is the host and servant of his meal. The primary action, the primary service that happens at the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper is this, is that the primary action is from God to man. Jesus is the servant, and this meal is his service, his divine gift to needy sinners. This is why uh, my professor said, Sinclair Ferguson, this supper, the Lord's Supper, tastes best to sinners. Luke chapter 22, verse 24, Jesus' disciples have just received the Lord's Supper for the first time. Jesus fulfilled Passover. We'll come back to that. And as soon as they received the Lord's Supper for the very first time, they break out into an argument as to which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? You just got served by the living God who humbled himself as a servant, and now you are arguing immediately, oh, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. And you can just see them going back and forth. Quite sinful, right? 
So in response, Luke 22, verse 27 says, to these prideful, glory-seeking disciples, Jesus looks at them and he says, I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Answer me. And Jesus says, the greatest is the one who serves. And then he says, and I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is saying, none of you are the greatest. I'm the greatest. And I am the greatest because I am your servant. Does that make anybody in here feel a little bit weird? God is your servant? It almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man, now the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation. It goes back to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is coming and he is crushing the kingdoms of this world. Great, glorious conqueror. And Jesus takes that title, applies it to himself, his favorite title, and he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The great conquering king of Daniel 7 has come to serve. And how is he serving? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says concerning the cup that we drink, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so this designation, the Lord's Supper, reminds us that Jesus is our servant at his table who came to serve us by giving his life for us on the cross as a ransom so that our sins could be paid for and we could receive the forgiveness of sins. Third, the Lord's Supper, this designation reminds us that this sacrament is a meal, it is not a sacrifice. I want to give you a little church history. Fundamental to the English reformer Thomas Cranmer was his conviction that the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal. And he made this clear by the use of his title called the Supper of the Lord in his 1552 prayer book. What Thomas Cranmer rightly understood was that the Lord's Supper was instituted in the context of Jewish fellowship meals, namely the Passover. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, set the institution of the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And so the Lord's Supper is the New Testament counterpart, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover meal. And Jesus instituted this sacrament during the meal in the upstairs room of a house. It was a meal around a table. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul says, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast. And so in the liturgy of the Lord's Supper, Paul's statement is what is known as the fraction. And at this part of the Lord's Supper, as God's gathered guests are, are gathered in the church, the church proclaims with the apostle in the liturgy something like this, and they've done this for centuries. 
Alleluia, Christ our Passover sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. Alleluia. That's an appropriate response in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so here when we talk about Christ fulfilling Passover, Christ being our Passover who has sacrificed for us, Christ the Passover lamb fulfilling Passover, this is where we have the focal center point of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That is Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Christ is our Passover lamb who gave himself on the cross for our sins. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Christ also loved you. How did he love you? He gave himself up for us an offering, listen, and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's Old Testament temple imagery. Christ is the sacrifice. His Passover lamb, fulfilling the Passover lamb type, was dying on the cross as a sacrifice, as a fragrant aroma to God. And so contrary to a fellowship meal in the medieval church, the medieval church had turned this sacrament into a sacrifice. Um, If you go back and look, and it continues to this day, the medieval mass turned the bread and wine uh, into the body and blood of Christ and offered it up to God as a sacrifice for the sins of the living and the dead. And so the medieval church turned the movement of this sacrament from God to man to man to God. It's something that we come and offer a sacrifice to God. And so the medieval church changed the Lord's Supper from a fellowship meal to a sacrifice. Therefore, they replaced tables with an altar. And yet, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the Corinthian believers that they should be eating a supper at a table. So the rule of thumb would be in the church, get the table off of the back wall, put it into the center of the church, look familiar, right? And so that when the pastor stands behind the Lord's table, you can see his feet, right? So you can see my feet because it's not an altar. It is a table where you have a meal, not a sacrifice on an altar because we're not offering God anything. We're not appeasing and propitiating the wrath of God. And so to press home the fact that the Lord's Supper was a fellowship meal and not a sacrifice, Thomas Cranmer sought to remove all altars from parish churches and replace them with ordinary tables in the Reformation. Um, In 1551, King Edward VI had what was called a Regency Council. And this council issued a letter requiring all parish churches to take down the altars in their church and replace them with tables. And I want you to listen to what part of this letter said, um, and it gives several, several reasons for, the, for doing this. Listen, listen to this letter. It's very interesting. It says, first, the form of a table shall more move the simple from superstitious opinions of the popish, popish mass unto the right use of the Lord's Supper. So they're trying to get rid of superstition. This is not magic that happens here. For the use of an altar is to make sacrifice upon it, but the use of a table is to serve for men to eat upon it. 
If we come to feed upon him spiritually to eat his body and spiritually to drink his blood, which is the true sense of the Lord's Supper, then no man can deny but the form of a table is more meat or appropriate for the Lord's table on which food is served than the form of an altar. They got it right. And so then rather than being a sacrifice, something that we offer to God, the Lord's Supper reminds us, this designation, that it is a fellowship meal in which God offers something to us. What is that? It is Christ and all of his saving benefits. It is his body that was offered and broken for us on the cross. It was his blood that was shed for us on the cross, and that is offered to us. In this sacrament, it is Christ's sacrifice. And so, because the Lord's Supper was instituted in the context of Passover, that means this, is that just as Old Testament believers remembered their deliverance from Egyptian slavery on account of the blood that was smeared upon the tops of the doorposts of their houses, so New Testament believers, when they observed the Lord's Supper, Remember their deliverance from slavery to their sin, from slavery to death, from slavery to the devil. And they remember on account of Christ, who is our Passover lamb, who offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for us. They remember this, and they give thanks for their deliverance. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind this, is that when we remember in the Lord's Supper, we're not just recalling a past event that has no present significance. When we are called, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it is a way to remember in such a way that when we recall the past work of Christ on our behalf, it is present in our life now by faith in the working of the Holy Spirit. It's not just in the past. And so this is why the third exhortation in the Book of Common Prayer exhorts believers at the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. Every time they celebrate the Lord's Supper, it says this. It says, quote, Always remember the exceeding great love of our Master and only Savior Jesus Christ, thus dying for us and the innumerable benefits which by his precious bloodshedding he has obtained for us. I love that phrase. Remember the exceeding great love of our Master and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a visible sign and seal of the exceeding love of God for you. Remember that when you come. So that's the Lord's Supper. The second designation is Holy Communion. Holy is not some big liturgical we're going to have now. Holy Communion. You know, you think like that. All holy means is this, set apart. It's set apart. This adjective, holy, emphasizes that the communion that is experienced at this sacrament is not ordinary. It's not common. It is extraordinary. God takes what is ordinary and it becomes extraordinary. Holy communion expresses our communion with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, as well as our communion with one another as members of the body of Christ. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He says this, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, 
Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is the Greek word you've heard many times, koinonia, fellowship, participation, sharing, a sharing in, a participation in, a communion with. He says this, the bread that we break, is it not a participation? Is it not fellowship, communion in the body of Christ? He says, because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, so that through this sacrament, the Holy Spirit is forming believers into an ever-deepening communion, fellowship with each other through their union with Christ. And so sharing food with with another individual is a way of getting to know them in a personal way and establishing a deeper bond of friendship together. That's one of the wonderful reasons we're doing these supper clubs once a month on Friday nights. I just want to say a word about that. Those fellowship groups that we do are wonderful, aren't they? And, And the food was just outstanding, I'll have to say. This church always shows up and brings great organic, healthy food. I love that. Um, if you come to Paramount Church Potlucks, you get healthy, not fat. So come to Paramount Church to get healthy. But, but, but it's wonderful fellowship. It's a wonderful evening. We just had a great time sharing and talking and getting to know each other and eating good food. And that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. By virtue of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, he has overcome our estrangement from God, and listen, and also our estrangement from each other. And so both aspects of this holy fellowship are seen in the beginning of the book of 1 John, and this is what John writes in his letter in 1 John. He says, what we have seen and heard, what is he talking about? He's talking about the incarnation. You see, the gospel is physical and tangible. It's historical. We saw the gospel. We heard the gospel. That's Jesus and his saving work. What we have seen and what we have heard, the apostles, we proclaim to you also. Why? That you also may have fellowship with us. And then he says, and indeed, our fellowship, our communion is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of Holy Communion is to facilitate fellowship with the Father and the Son by the power of the Spirit, as well as facilitate believers' fellowship and communion who gather together to observe this sacrament together as one body. Do you know what the goal of human existence is? Do you know what the goal of the gospel is, the goal of this whole story? It's communion with the triune God. It is fellowship with the triune God. What did Adam and Eve do with God in the garden before they sinned? They had deep, abiding, wonderful communion, fellowship with God. And, listen, with each other. We have no idea what it's like to be in a society that has perfect communion. We do know what it's like to be in a society full of racism. We do know what it's like to be in a society full of murder and crime, and theft, where we have to have um, alarm systems on our homes, right? We know what that kind of society feels like, broken, fractionated homes. We know what that feels like. Some of you know what it feels like to go through divorce, have experienced divorce, or or children losing parents. We know what that feels like. We've never tasted fully what full communion feels like, but we will. 
And the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, points us to this foretaste. It is a pointer to the consummated reality of the gospel. So that if we are black or white, Asian or Hispanic, I don't even like those, those, those terms. We are, listen, children of God in Christ. The only designation we have as believers in Christ, the only fundamental demographic that we have in the body of Christ, listen, you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And so this table destroys racism. It destroys sexism. It destroys all the isms of this world because it's the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It tells us together as a body that when we come together, we are all sinners redeemed by the blood of the lamb, our Passover lamb, and we are all in him as one body. That's powerful, isn't it? And so Thomas Cramner did this. He he regarded the Lord's Supper as an intimate encounter, an intimate communion in which first and foremost, the worshipers have a deep and personal communion with Christ himself. And it is through that personal communion with Christ that the fellowship, the holy fellowship of the church flows to one another. And so this brings us to the third designation, which is Holy Eucharist. Now, Holy Eucharist is probably the term that's making some of you get a little uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Holy Eucharist. Welcome to Holy Eucharist. You shouldn't be uncomfortable with that. It's probably most unfamiliar with or resistant to using, but this is a huge mistake because it is a strong, has a very strong biblical basis and purpose for it. The word Eucharist comes from a Greek word that Jesus uses in the institution of the Lord's Supper as he fulfilled Passover, which means this. The Greek word simply means this, means to give thanks. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus, on the night when he instituted this sacrament in the upper room, right before his crucifixion when he was with his disciples, Luke 22, verses 17 to 19, listen to where this comes from. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, and when the, the phrase when he had given thanks is simply the, the English is Eucharist. From the Greek verb, Eucharisteo, means to, to, to give thanks, Eucharist. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the giving of thanks is abundantly clear in Jesus' words of institution. This designation, Holy Eucharist, emphasizes this. Listen very carefully. It is emphasizing first and foremost the fact that Jesus is leading his church out and giving thanks to God. That's so significant. Jesus giving thanks, leading us to give thanks. Holy Eucharist draws our attention to the fact that thanksgiving was a marked characteristic of Jesus our Lord. He was a grateful man. He was filled with profound gratitude. 
But secondly, in derivative of Jesus' thanksgiving, the designation Holy Eucharist reminds us that the fundamental disposition, Bible teachers call it Eucharistic piety. That's a new phrase for you to go out this week and tell everybody our church has Eucharistic piety, right? The fundamental disposition that this sacrament creates in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit is to possess and express thanksgiving, Tragically, the giving of thanks is often lacking in observance of Holy Eucharist, both by the leaders of the church and the people. And it should be noted that a lack of thankfulness is a chief mark of unbelievers in the scripture. And so we come to this sacrament this morning not with fear, not with guilt, not with reluctance, not with a yellow caution light. We don't come with sorrow. We don't come because this is not a funeral. We come with deep, profound gratitude for Christ who is at this table as our servant, saving us, assuring us of our salvation. Thanks, John. That's a message called The Gift of Communion, Part 5. More from the series, The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests, coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.